everywhere you go. It seems everybody you talk with, it's the same conversation with the same question. What's going to happen to America? What are we to do in such a time as this? What do we say? How do we respond? And there's a lot of depression and despondency, a lot of questions, a lot of apprehension, not only in the COVID world, but certainly in the political world, in the world of the family. And we're wondering what's going on. And every once in a while, you hear a talking head say something like, well, you know, a wise person said one day, a house divided against itself will not stand. Without a clue that they're quoting Jesus. And let's put it in context, exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 12. He said, a nation divided against itself will be wasted and a city or a house divided against itself will not stand. Now that's not a prophecy. It's not an opinion that someone has. It is the word of revealed truth through God, man, and Jesus Christ. Listen to it again. A nation that is divided, and we're certainly divided, Jesus said will be wasted. Devastating word. A house divided, a city divided, will not stand. So we look to God, perhaps as we haven't looked at him in a long, long time, some of us, and said, Lord, we, we want some answers. We, we've turned everywhere, and now we turn to you. What are we to do? How are we now then to live? Schaefer's question. I've searched for that answer. And I turn to the book of 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. And we're beginning a study in which we'll be in 1 and 2 Corinthians throughout this year. And I've called it 1 and 2 Houstonians because Paul, inspired by God, speaks to the situation in Corinth and it's been astounding to me how first century Corinth is so much alike 21st century Houston. The similarities are amazing and staggering. For example, we can see that both cities, Corinth and Houston, were entrepreneurial cities. Entrepreneurs saw in the location of Corinth and the location of Houston a strategic place where business and commerce and success and wealth could be accumulated. And we know where Corinth is located, if we remember the map, 
You have northern Greece, you have southern Greece, northern Greece, Macedonia, you have southern Greece, and that little bitty isthmus there that connects the Ionian Sea with the Adriatic Sea, that little isthmus that's called the Bridge of Greece, that was a location of Corinth, and it connected Italy with the rest of the world, It also went north and south because to sail around the point of Greece was one of the most dangerous voyages any ship could endeavor, and therefore they would go to that little isthmus, four miles, and they would unload their ship and drag it those four miles, the cargo there, and reload it on the other side. So Corinth, in a sense, had two harbors. On top of that, when the Romans went and invaded Greece and conquered Corinth. Normally, the Romans would take over a city, establish their government, and let the people have some degree of freedom. But when they conquered Corinth, as the Roman army walked walked through the city, they threw feces and trash and mud and jeered and cursed them, and therefore the Romans said, time out. They went and leveled the city of Corinth until brick was not upon brick, and they burned and destroyed and flattened Corinth, and Corinth did not exist for almost 100 years. Until Julius Caesar became emperor of Rome, and he was the entrepreneur that built a brand-new Corinth. So in the days of Paul, there in the first century, it would be relatively a a new strategic city, shipbuilding, commerce. People came there from everywhere. It was literally an entrepreneurial city. Now, all of us know that like Corinth, we are an entrepreneurial city. Where did it all start? We can go back and talk about the Allen brothers. There's a Horatio Alger story. They were school teachers in northern New York, and they made their way to the Mississippi River, came down a barge and with a flotilla for protection, and they made their way inland trying to get to Galveston. This was Mexico then. And they turned away from their citizenship and became Mexicans because they sought to buy land in Galveston, but all the land was already taken. And so they moved inland on the Buffalo Bow and the uh, Whitewater Bow, and they met, and they said, this is a good place to have a city. And so they had a meal there with Sam Houston and Charlotte, the wife of the older Allen brother, said, you know, we're going to name this new town, this new city, after you. And they called it Houston. Now, the Allen brothers were snake oil salesmen. They were real entrepreneurs because they took little ink drawings that they made of what Houston was supposed to be like, and they multiplied them, and they went all over to friends and family and said, come, this is the ideal place in which to begin a new life and have land. And that little ink drawing. You can see it in Stephen Kleinberg's book, The Prophetic City. By the way, I highly recommend that. That professor of sociology has done a thorough study of 38 years of life in Houston. 
And he has a picture of that little drawing that looked like a Swiss village. <laughs> they, they had a church there and these beautiful little chateaus that were there. And it was on a cliff and, and down was beautiful clear water. Nothing like Houston the Allen Birds were living in. It was a community of tents after tents after tents. They had a saloon. And then they had the beginning of some little bitty houses, and that was it. But people came from far and wide and bought land as the Allen brothers had bought land. They bought 6,000 acres of land for $5,000. And Houston was established. Geographically, it was strategically established. And once again... Much like Corinth. Corinth had, the size of Corinth was 537 uh, miles, square miles, and Houston is 637 square miles, so a lot of similarities there. But the geography fit, and so they began to farm. They, they discovered that this marshland, in which we now call metropolitan Houston surrounding areas, could grow crops. Cotton was king, sugar came, rice came, other kind of commodities began to grow all around Houston, and the Allen brothers were shouting and calling for people to come and buy land from them and to establish a city. And you see on the Buffalo Bio, a little placket says they were looking for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. So they had a theistic understanding in all of their showmanship and all their salesmanship. And so we see Houston begin to grow by leaps and bounds. And so we see the Allen brothers, they did a great deal to establish this whole entrepreneurial area. Look at the seal of Houston. You see on there a train and a plow, and we'll get to the trains a little later. But people were coming. We're an entrepreneurial city. And then in 1898, here comes Jesse Jones. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesse Jones, more than any other single individual, was the ultimate entrepreneur and really put down deep, deep affluent roots here in the city of Houston. Jesse Jones was not a Horatio Alger story. He came from a rather affluent timber family in Tennessee. He came at 27, and he began to be profitable in the timber business and other kind of businesses. And soon in, 18, in 1900, that devastating four-category hurricane hit Galveston. And Galveston, which was the wealthiest city in America, the most cultured city in America, had more erudition and more business and became the number one port in this area, far surpassing New Orleans, but that storm flattened Galveston. Jesse Jones stepped in the gap. He began promoting Houston as some sort of a, a potential coastal city that would surpass Galveston. And then about in 19, what, 01, something happened called Spindletop. Bam! 
near Beaumont, right? You'd think Beaumont would be the oil city there. It was a boom city, but Jesse Jones took and parlayed all the oil companies that came here to Houston. When Spindletop was first exploded and first spewed out of the ground with those miles of oil until they put a cap on it, they said, my goodness, you know, this might produce, you know, 50 barrels of oil a day. It ended up being 80,000 barrels of oil a day. What happened there? It was Jesse Jones who brought all the oil, Stiff Arm, Rockefeller, and Standard Oil, who had a monopoly. And there you have Gulf Oil and all the 500-plus oil companies that exploded and made Houston the energy headquarters, which it is today. And then our, our then all of a sudden, about 1933, wasn't that we finally lobbied Washington and they built that ship channel, and now Houston became a seaport, far surpassing Galveston or New Orleans, and today it is the first or second most important seaport we have in the United States of America. So we see the similarities between Corinth and the other, and now we were worried about water. All the water that Houston would get would be out of the bio, it became contaminated, and they dug down a well somewhere around the uh, oh, second ward, and they ran into the third largest aquifer of supply of water they found in America. Look how Houston, strategically located, with so many assets, and then we have coming along 8F Suite, George Brown, and the Lamar Hotel. And he would bring once a week all the movers and shakers of Houston. And then we move into the medical center. Then we moved into arts. We moved into all kinds of enhancing things that we have here. And now Houston is affluent and one of the leading cities in all the world because of the entrepreneurs that were there. Corinth was an entrepreneurial city because of its geography, its strategic place, and we see and know Houston is an entrepreneurial city. But also, we also know that Corinth was an international city. People from all over the world, Africa, Israel, Phoenicia, Syria, Rome, all over the world, people flocked to Corinth because they saw success and opportunity. It became an international city. People from everywhere went there, and they had a, a culture and a life unlike any other city on the planet. At one time, Corinth had a population of 200,000, but they also had over 500,000 slaves. It was an affluent, booming city. It was an international city. People came all over the world. Languages were spoken, many languages, right there in ancient Corinth. Much like Houston today, perhaps you know it, we are the number one international city in the United States today. We passed New York and L.A. long since. We have every language, every culture. One out of every four individuals who live in metropolitan Houston were born in another country. We're an international city. And to see what Dr. Kleinberg said, all of America is coming, 
Houston has already become. For example, you take Harris County, the center of Houston as we know. Harris County today, roughly speaking, broadly speaking, one-fourth is Asian, one-fourth is Hispanic, one-fourth is black, one-fourth is Anglo. That's Harris County. That's where we are demographically today. And the future says that that's going to be all of America in the very, very few years that face us. So we see that we are an entrepreneurial city, as was Corinth. We're an international city, as was Corinth. And also, we are in a hedonistic city, as was Corinth. Corinth was built on pleasure and sensuality and sexuality. They had on the hill there, Acropolis, which I've been to it, they would take down a thousand priestesses every night would come into Corinth and they would sell their wares to all who would come. It was an accepted form of worship sensuality and sexuality in Corinth. They had all kind of gods and goddesses. And also in Corinth, they had a lot of sports and activities. The precursor to the Olympics took place right there in the stadium, right up a little hill across the road where Corinth was located, the Persian Games. And they had everything you want to do to bring pleasure and enjoyment there to that ancient city. It was a hedonistic, sensual, sexual city, just like Houston, Texas. In fact, we are far beyond Corinth, and to compare Corinth with their sexual perversion, we almost have to apologize because we are far, far, far worse. University of Texas did a survey and said that there are roughly 319,000 sex slaves living in Texas. Not prostitutes, not prostitutes, oh no. Sex slaves living in Texas. And of those, over 79,000 of them are minors, children, are under 18 years of age. Every year, over 50,000 sex slaves pass through Houston, and we are the number one area proponent selling sex slaves all over this land, and in one sense, all over the world, comes right through our city, basically on Bissonette, an area over there, but now it's proliferated all over our city. We are a hedonistic city. Prostitution, we perhaps have more prostitutes, they believe, than any other city in America. We have more perversion. Drugs are exploding around us. And we major on pleasure. So we see that Corinth, like Houston, Houston like Corinth, first century Corinth, 21st century Houston, are mirror cities. Mirror cities. Entrepreneurial, successful, absolutely. International, without question, absolutely. Hedonistic, without question, absolutely. So the question is, as we are severely divided as a people, as a nation, what are we to do?
what God said through the Apostle Paul to the church and the Christians in Corinth in the first century, about 157 A.D. I think is exactly what he would say to you and to me as we ask the question, what are we to do? How are we to respond? And ladies and gentlemen, let me say, this is the finest opportunity for God in Jesus Christ to make a difference in America that we've ever had before. Because so many are on their knees, so many are flat on their faces, and we see our four freedoms have been virtually taken away from us. You think it's bad now, it's going to get worse, most people believe. So how do we respond? Exactly, I think, with the words that Paul penned when Corinth sent a letter to the apostle while he was in Ephesus and says, here's our problems. And they list their problems, and their problems sounds like our problems, exactly like our problems. And Paul gives an answer. And that answer was relevant then, and it's relevant now to you and to me for such a time as this. Look what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes our brother. Remember Sosthenes you read in Acts 17 was a ruler of the synagogue. He became a Christian. So Sosthenes comes with Paul to Corinth. And by the way, Paul had a tremendous staff at Corinth. He had Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers, along with himself. He had Apollos. He, he had Timothy and Titus. He had Christus. He built quite a team there of godly men and women to help him establish the church. And he established a strong church because he stayed there for a year and a half. Now, if you're going to establish a church, <laughs> would you start in Corinth? But he did. And he begins by saying to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, hold on to that word, in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who are at every place, call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and their Lord is ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one, two, three. Notice the word sanctified. Very interesting. If you read Paul's letters, he always begins with doctrine. He says, all right, this is what you believe, and because you believe this, this is how you live. Every letter of Paul, except the Corinthian letters. In the Corinthian letters, he blends doctrine in with admonitions and advice, and he begins not with justification. Justification is how we're justified before God through Jesus Christ. It's almost an evangelistic beginning with all of his other letters. But with this, he begins with sanctification. What does that mean? It means he accepts the fact that those from every walk of life in the church at Corinth were Christians. He had built the right stuff in this widely diversified congregation. And he starts with sanctification. He said, you are sanctified. That means you have received Christ 
and you're growing up and maturing in your faith. So he spoke with them with a different tone and a different nuance than he did in his other letters. And then what he says, this is what you ought to do. Now, the next verses, verse 4 through 9, they're rather surprising. Because what does Paul do? He begins to encourage the church. He brags on them. Now, here they are with all these severe moral theological problems, cultural problems, political problems, down on their knees, flatter their face. They don't know what to do. And Paul begins by (laughs) applauding and praising and encouraging them. Isn't that interesting? Now, stay with me. This is where we must begin. We're in a similar situation. The parallel is mind-boggling. What do we begin? We begin with God and Christ through this passage encouraging us. And look at the words of encouragement. They're absolutely fabulous. Look at verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. He begins with this totally confused, mixed up, immoral, divided city and church. He begins by saying, I want you to know, I want you to remember who you are. That's what he said to us. This time of SOS, remember who you are. He said, you've been given the grace of God. In other words, you've been given righteousness. You read the book of Romans 35 times, you you find that Paul is saying to the Roman church, he said, God has given you righteousness. He has put righteousness in you and in me as we receive Jesus Christ. He has filled us with righteousness. He said, you have the gift of righteousness. That's who you are. And it's, it's by grace, it's by charis that we've given this righteousness. And therefore, in the process of sanctification, how do we grow up? He's saying, remember who you are. What does that mean? How do we mature in Christ? Now, we all had time to confess. We talk about the habitual sins that seem to be ingrown in your life and in my life. And there's that bitterness that may be there. There's that hardness that would be there. There's a desire for revenge that might be there. There's all the lust of the flesh, the lust, all that is there. How do we deal with that? If we're going to grow up in the Lord, if we're going to discover who we are in Christ Jesus, as Christ Jesus is in you, as Christ Jesus is in me, it's a word to Christians. What do we do? Well, there's one approach says, you do it. I take care of myself. I've got the problem of bitterness. I'm going to determine I'm going to stop being bitter. Oh, I've got the problem of greed. Well, I'm determined I'm going to start being generous. I'm start going to be greedy. I'm going to work at it. I will do it. By the way, how is that working for you? Huh? Had any success? I will change myself. 
I tell you, the success rate is zero. Zero. Augustine says the more we try ourselves to deal with a problem that continues to crop up in our lives, the more that problem takes wings and embeds itself deeper in you and deeper in me. So one side says, I will do it. Otherwise said, it's an inside job. I can't do it. Therefore, God will do it. Now, if I can't change myself and you can't change myself and God can change us, does that work? No, that doesn't work either. That's illogical. If I can't change myself by effort, legalism, by law, and I say, well, God will change me from inside, and God doesn't do it, well, is there any hope? On one side, there's legalism, and one side, there's anonymism. Let's look at it like this. Here is a ridge, a ridge, and on this side, there's a sheer drop into nothingness. And on this side of the ridge, there's a sheer drop into nothingness. And on this side, we say, I will change myself. I will do it. And that is moral bankruptcy because it never works. On this side, we say, God will change me. And that is, we wait and wait and live just like we want to live. And that doesn't work either. What's the answer? It's that ridge. It's that straight and narrow path. And we call it the path of spiritual disciplines. Whoa, you say, you're getting too deep. No, I'm not. It's spiritual disciplines. In other words, I can't do it and God will not do it. But when we put ourselves before God, when we consistently, you and I, place ourselves before him, amazing things begin to happen to you and to me on the inside. I am not greedy any longer, not because I tried to stop my greed. It's because I've been changed from within because I exercise those spiritual disciplines. What are those disciplines? First of all is the discipline of Meditation. Man, meditation, yep. Man, I, I just spend time quiet, hands in the air, just meditating on God and Christ, seeking his presence, his fullness. Meditation. And then out of meditation becomes seasons of fasting. That won't hurt anybody. Because without eating, we're giving ourselves to spiritual things, and our energy can be involved in spiritual things. We're on that ridge. We're trying to change ourselves from within. No, God in Christ is doing it through meditation, through fasting, and through prayer. And we pray, and because we're in Christ, the voice we hear is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to you and me. You say, well, it's tough to hear the voice of God. No, it isn't. We meditate, we fast, and we listen. And what he says, we simply obey. It'll work every single time, folks. Inherently, always. And then we study. We study the book. We study Bible. And all of a sudden, something is happening in your life and in my life. 
It's not, I've got rid of this, I no longer have this, but the change has come within because we're exercising spiritual disciplines. You say, well, that'll take a lot of time. I, I just don't have time like you preachers and some people. I've got to get up in the morning. I don't have the time to do all those spiritual things where God can change me from within that'll be reflected without. Let me tell you something. How many of you have watched a football game or part of a football game in the last six months? Lift your hand, hold it up. Confession. Confession. Leave your hand up. If you watched a part of a football game or a football game the last six months, lift your hand. We're confessing today. I know it's tough for some of you in the balcony. Hold your hand up. Okay, hands down. The Wall Street Journal just about a year or so ago, examined football. For those of you who don't know, football game, NFL, it, it lasts for 60 minutes, 15-minute quarters, four of them. In that time, you have a lot of things going on. You have all the pre-announcements. Pre you have uh, average NFL football game lasts three hours and 12 minutes average, on an average. And you have the introduction. You have the commercials, about 17 minutes. You have the halftime. You have more commercials, another 17 minutes plus. And then you have all the commentaries on the replays that take place. But the actual football, from the hut-hut to snap, until someone is tackled or passes incomplete or someone goes out of bounds, until the next whistle, in the NFL, a football play lasts on an average of four seconds. Four seconds. That's an average. Therefore, when we watch a professional football game, i.e. the last Super Bowl, you know how much time is spent actually seeing football from the whistle to the whistle played is 11 minutes. 11 minutes. All the rest is in and out and foo-foo and this and announcement and commentaries about players, about coaches, and all the commercials that go with it. You actually see football in an average game 11 minutes. Now, you tell me, I don't have time in my life for spiritual disciplines like meditation. Oh, no, meditation, fasting, prayer, biblical study. When we do that, God begins to change you and change me from the inside out. And guess what? What happens, that's like planting a seed in the ground. A seed cannot grow itself. We just put a seed in the ground. The soil is prepared. The cultivation is there. The germination takes place. The seed dies, and the seed begins to grow for light and water and nutrition. And that seed comes up and produces the fruit of that seed, the essence of that seed just by surrendering to that. 
Listen, when we begin to practice spiritual disciplines and quit trying to say, I can do it or God is going to do it, we get in the presence of God daily and regularly. Amazing things happen. All of a sudden, there is fruit coming up in your life that we can't manufacture, and all of a sudden we say, man, there's love. There's love. There, there's, there's joy. There, there's, there's peace. Oh, oh, look, there is perseverance. There is patience. And look, coming up in the life, there, there is something else. There's not only there's kindness. My goodness, where did kindness come from? And then, look, there is goodness. And you turn around and say, my, 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 there's faithfulness. And, and, and then there's gentleness. And then there's self-control. Would you like to live with somebody who had love and joy, who had patience and kindness and goodness, and self-control, and was gentle. Does that sound like somebody you'd like to live with, you'd like to know, you'd like to be around, you'd like to have as your friend, or your business associate, or your neighbor? Does that sound like somebody that, boy, is really a terrific person, not pretending to be, but genuinely letting all the fruit flow through their life? Does that sound like somebody that you would like to become? You know, so we're all big old, well, I want to change the world. I'm upset about this. We need to do this. Do you have a thought that maybe the place to begin is with yourself? I want to change everybody else. Oh, yes. But what about God changing you and changing me until the fruit of the Spirit begin to appear in our lives? What do we do in this crisis in which we find ourselves in America and in the world. What do we do? First of all, Paul says, remember who you are. And then he says, remember what you have. And this gets richer and richer and richer. He says that in everything, you were enriched in him in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. And you are not lacking in any gift. Corinthians 12, the gifts of the Spirit. There's some 25 of them, subsidiaries listed there. This is what he's given us. This is who we are in Christ. And this is what he's given us, these gifts. Man, this is what we have. And then he says, look at the direction in which you're going. He, he picks up all this thing. He said, awaiting Eagerly, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. When history comes down or we leave this earth, look at the direction in which we're headed. He's saying, right now, remember who you are. Remember what you have. Remember where you're going, the direction in which you're facing. And then he ends up by saying, this is even richer. He says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He said, finally, remember who you know. 
Remember who you know. You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is our priest. He provides forgiveness for us. Jesus Christ is our shepherd. He guides us. Jesus Christ is our king. He is Lord and superintends our life. Jesus Christ, this personal relationship with him. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to remember who we are. We're going to remember what we have. We remember the direction in which we're going. And remember that we have a personal, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the creator and the author and the finisher of our faith. In this secular world, let's be reminded of where we are. Now, this is what we do. This is who we are. Remember the whole area of prayer. In our secular world, what kind of prayers are accepted and what kind of prayers are rejected? Recently, in the House of Representatives, U.S. Congress, Representative Cleaver from Kansas prayed. He went through a rather lengthy prayer. And when he got through, he prayed for the monotheistic God. He said, we pray in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahman. Now, Brahman is a part of the highest caste in India, but the God of Brahman is in totally disrespect and has only two little temples in India because Brahman is the God who demeans women and says they're nothing but really animals to be used and exploited. That is the God Brahman in whose monotheistic name he prayed in. And then he prayed also in the many names that God has through all the faiths all the faith, F-A-I-T-H-S, of the world. And you pray in the name of these gods as if they were all monotheistic. Those names indicate pagan gods that are a million miles from the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Jesus. But he prayed in all of those names. And then he said, amen, which in Hebrew means so let it be. Amen has nothing to do with gender or male or female, but he said amen, and then he said a women. This member of the House of Representatives is an ordained Methodist minister. Thank God he's not a Baptist. (laughs) Trained in a Methodist theological seminary in Kansas. But that prayer in our secular world is okay. It's okay. Filled with theological ignorance, prayed by someone who would tell you he is a, quote, Christian, end quote, not being judgmental, that God does that. That prayer is ecumenical. It's okay. 
little girl by the name of Caleb Broadus in kindergarten, Saratoga Springs, New York. Snack time, Kayla grabs the hands of two of her little friends and she prays, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. And the teacher rushes in and says, Kayla, what are you doing? What kind of prayer is that? You, you can't do that. that. That's out of bounds. That's illegal. And the teacher turned five-year-old Kayla in to the school system's attorney. And the attorney said, separation of church and state has been broken. Now, I hope all of you know by now, if you haven't been in a fog that there is nothing in the foundational documents of the United States of America that prescribes separation of church and state. It was a phrase that Thomas Jefferson used to say to the Union Baptist Association in Danbury, Connecticut, that we will not establish a national religion or denomination. That's not what the government does because there's a wall of separation between church and state, which is very true and very legitimate, but it has absolutely nothing to do the way it's been parlayed by legal-minded people and some judges who ought to have flunked their first year in law school. <laughs> now, the result of that, Caleb's mother sued the school system and they settled out of court, and the settlement was, yes, Kayla, you can pray out loud by yourself, but you can't dare bring any of your friends in to pray with you. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. It is not an accepted prayer in America. At this moment in history, Paul said to Corinth, he's saying to us, first of all, get the foundation right. Remember who you are. Remember what you have been given, what you have. Remember where you're going. And remember who you know. This is a foundation that we must have individually as we begin to deal through the book of Corinthians with the problems that was besetting Corinth as the problems that are besetting Houston, the problems that are besetting America and our world. But let's get our role, our foundation in place. Okay? Okay.